0: Welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it could be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand because those systems affect all of our lives, all of the time. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. In season one, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. This is season two, in which we're trying to look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. Looking ahead in Season 3, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. Importantly, when we get to Season 3, we'll be sharing our ideas but also sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Today, we're going to have a closer look at the blunders of our governments. These have been committed by British governments of all political parties. So what's at stake here is not the competence or incompetence of a particular party or of a specific government or even of any particular individual. It would certainly be possible to challenge the competence of many. But that's not the point here. The point here is to examine the system which makes those blunders possible. So far already, we've seen that the whole process isn't working properly for our elected representatives, our MPs. In Season 1, we looked at how hard it is for us, the voters, to make the electoral system work properly so that the people whom we elect are likely to be good representatives, representing us and representing our needs and preferences. Already in Season 2, we've looked at how hard it is for a new MP to get elected, how hard it is for a new MP to work out how to be effective once they are elected, And then how the systems within Parliament mean that much of their work is then controlled by party whips or bullied into line by ministers or simply bypassed by having secondary legislation slipped into bills at the last minute or finally by being pulled in so many different directions that our MPs become effectively powerless. It's difficult to get elected and then once you are elected it's difficult to achieve much. You're overworked, you're under-supported and you're expected to just go with the flow – All whilst managing an onslaught of pressure from the media, pressure from your political party, and even pressure from your own leadership or government. So, today we're looking at blunders and executive power. There are big systemic problems with the way in which our government is supposed to work. Many of these problems stem from the fact that political parties are able to influence more than one side of the separation of powers the executive government on one side and the legislative parliament on the other. The conflicting pressures on MPs which this straddling of the separation between executive and legislative generates, well that undermines the process of proper scrutiny of government policy and of the creation of new laws. So why is this scrutiny of government policy so important? Well the short answer is that a very strong executive makes it possible for the government to make new laws in an unmediated rush without sufficient need to compromise and without having to consider either the implications of a policy or the practicalities of implementation. We've already discussed why government ministers might feel the pressure to get on with things with what might be their one brief taste of power, but even if that is understandable from the perspective of the individual minister, that isn't a recipe for good government. After all, the purpose of the structures and systems of government is actually supposed to be to deliver good government, not just to make it possible for a government minister to have an individual crack at making a mark for themselves. It's about all of us and about all of our interests, not just about the career high-water mark for a government minister. So if the systems of government mean that policies can be rushed through without proper consultation, without proper consensus building around them, and without them being properly scrutinised, well, what does that mean about the quality of the thinking behind those policies? What does that mean about whether the planning for making the policy can really achieve what it's intended to achieve? Even if we might not agree with what the policy is trying to achieve, well, at least it ought to achieve what it sets out to do, right? What it means is that policies get rushed into place. Consensus is not built, because the strong, centralised systems of power mean that decisions can be made quickly, and changes can be made relatively rapidly, certainly compared to some other governmental systems. Consultations are not held properly, or are not listened to properly. Lessons are not learned, because we have ministers who are in a rush, and who don't have to learn those lessons to get their policies into place. What it means is that we get bad policies, ineffective policies, policies which can actually make things worse, not better. Not all the time, to be sure, but far, far too often. Policies which we can refer to as blunders. Now, why do we call them blunders? Because they're not just mistakes. We can all make mistakes, particularly when situations change and a decision we made in the light of imperfect information turns out to have been less than ideal. But if we did have all the information, or could have had all the information if we'd listened properly, if we'd had all the information and could have avoided making a mistake, well, then it's a blunder. Let's look at some of the results of policies which were not properly scrutinised. What happens when those not-very-representative representatives actually get to work? Well, as you're probably aware, politicians are held in pretty low esteem at the moment. The time of automatic respect for our Elders and betters, that seems to have gone. Partly because our elders might be older, but they're not necessarily better. And partly because of the number of governmental cock-ups. That's a technical term, by the way. The number of governmental cock-ups of which in the UK we seem to have A. More than comparable countries and B. Unnecessarily many. You may have your own mental list of times when you have, at the very least, been disappointed by what our government has managed to get wrong on our behalf. I certainly do. Perhaps the most frustrating are those times when it seems as though some sort of private sector mess is sorted out at public expense, such as with Royal Bank of Scotland, BP or Land Rover. However, just to keep this objective, I'm going to focus on a list of big old government blunders, as identified in a 2014 publication by Ivor Crewe and Anthony King. And their publication was called The Blunders of Our Governments. To be clear again. When we talk about blunders, we're not talking about things which went wrong because something else changed, something which was unforeseeable. We're talking about things which were foreseeable and which the government did anyway. Blunders are things which were foreseeable. They are disappointments, that is, something went wrong or the outcome was negative. They were wrong judgment calls. Blunders include errors of commission, not omission. That is, things that were done were done incorrectly. Or perhaps they didn't have to be done. They're not things which were not done. And they're also meta-blunders, things which made them controversial, things which made them unpopular. In their book, Anthony King and Ivor Crewe identify 12 major blunders in the UK over the few decades before they published in 2014. For example, private pensions. During the late 1980s and early 1990s, private pensions were missold on a massive scale. Whilst the government had correctly identified that the cost to the country of state pensions was going to increase, as people lived longer after retirement, the solution was not simply to create a private pensions market in which people were poorly advised or actively mis-sold financial products which they really didn't understand and certainly didn't need, or which were not as good for them as something which they already had, but lost in the process. The result was a decades-long process of governments of all political persuasions forcing the financial institutions which had missold pensions to provide compensation to members of the public, amounting to nearly nine billion pounds. And that's even though many members of the public had died in the meantime, or perhaps simply didn't understand how to lodge a compensation claim. Okay, let's take another one. The poll tax. This is around nineteen ninety through to about nineteen ninety three. This was a tax that was introduced by The Conservative Thatcher government, and one which ultimately led to the Prime Minister herself, Margaret Thatcher, being removed from office by her own party. Now, one of the existing systems of raising government finance, a property tax which was called rates, this was clearly highly flawed and inequitable. Two identical properties paid the same for government services, whether one person lived in the property or eight. But the government introduced a poll tax in response to this, which was a per capita tax on individuals. Everybody pays the same. Although this was intended to redress the imbalance of the rate system, it was not only unpopular, but it was regressive. Everybody paid the same, whether they were rich or poor. And it also proved very difficult to collect. Let's take another example, the Child Support Agency. Now, there was an increase in the number of single mothers who were claiming benefits, which is effectively child maintenance, and the numbers roughly trebled between the 1970s and the 1990s. The cost of social security payments to single parents went from 2.4 billion in 1979 to 6.6 billion in 1992. That's over just 13 years. The urge to make fathers take responsibility for their children and to help pay towards this cost. That was felt across all political parties. The solution, however, was not to create an agency which completely misunderstood the nature of being a single parent. Couples which were separated, but where the father was in touch and was ready to support their child, they were often dragged into courts and legal proceedings, whereas in other cases the domestic situation was so complicated, perhaps with more than one father of different children in the same household, or possibly even with a father either unaware of the child or unidentified, It was so complicated that payments became impossible to create. A system was given teeth which bit too hard into people who already wanted to comply, just because it couldn't bite at the people who didn't want to comply. And in the end, the administration of the system cost far more to operate, about £137 million, than the value of the payments which were actually collected, about an extra £15 million. That's nearly ten times more in costs than in money raised. And we could go on. There's the way in which Britain crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism. There was public investment in the Millennium Dome. This was really a bit of a vanity project for the Labour government. It cost more than twice the original budget and failed to attract the expected number of visitors. And that's not really a shock looking back on the plans. The plans were that 12 million people would visit during the first year. And that's about 20% of the entire population of the country there's individual learning accounts Uh, perhaps not the biggest blunder in purely financial terms it only lost a few hundred million pounds rather than billions but the aim of offering training to people without appropriate work-related qualifications was undermined by the complexity of hosting thousands and thousands of relatively small financial accounts and it was far too easy to defraud. Tax credits. Now, these were intended to reduce the tax burden on people at the bottom of the employment ladder to encourage and enable them to get into work. But it was a system that was incredibly complicated and created structural problems which took years to sort out. There's the Asset Recovery Agency. This was designed to recover stolen proceeds from criminals. That sounds reasonable, but the agency ended up costing more than £65 and only collected £23 million. There was farm subsidies, non-payment of farm subsidies. A change in subsidies paid to farmers was introduced far too quickly and too ambitiously, more quickly in England than in any other nation in the UK. This resulted in payment delays, which were estimated to cost farmers between 18 and £22.4 million pounds in interest payment and fees to finance additional bank borrowing to bridge the gaps created. There are many, many over-ambitious and improperly planned IT projects, such as the NHS IT system for NHS patient records. There are public-private partnerships for the funding of state projects, such as the maintenance and upgrading of the London Underground, the so-called Metronet. This was intended to bring to public projects what new labor politicians believed was the expertise and greater efficiency of the private sector, but it created a Byzantine financial mess of debt and financial collapse which the private sector companies could walk away from, but which left a bill which the state had to step in to cover, and estimates for how much this cost range anything between 1 billion and 20 billion pounds. We might add in attempts to bring in ID cards and the arrangements of new GP contracts as well. And whether you voted for or against leaving the European Union in the referendum in 2016, well, you're unlikely to think that the way in which Brexit has been handled has been ideal. We hear more and more of people saying things like, this isn't what we voted for, even from those who voted for Brexit. And as I said earlier, you may have your own ideas too. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list, but just to illustrate the point about how incompetent our governments, as currently set up, how incompetent they can be. Now, it's important again to stress this is not a party political point. Governments across the political spectrum seem to be perfectly capable of messing things up. So why does this happen? Well, there are structural causes. There are poorly designed decision-making processes. A solution might be we should reform our policy-making institutions. There's a deficit of deliberation. Our governments can be perhaps too efficient, too decisive. And a solution might be to accommodate more veto players, take time, take more information into consideration, take advice. There's an operational disconnect. The people who are doing the planning, they're not the people who end up operating it. They're professional politicians they very often haven't actually ever run anything in their lives. They're not really interested in design or implementation because they have no long-term responsibility. They move on to another job. A solution might be to encourage more politicians with broader experience than just politics and make sure that their decisions are tracked and that it's clear who was responsible. That's a great role for the media there. Just to elaborate on that idea of operational disconnect, ministers and senior civil servants, are not accountable enough. They move on in less than two years, but the results of most government projects can only really be judged after a minimum of one or two years, and probably much, much longer. A new policy will not be blocked before ministers and senior civil servants move on. Consequences are only perceived later. Ministers and civil servants are assessed on short-term achievements. They don't want to think about problems, they don't want to deal with details. And to build on that idea, there are behavioural causes. The people making these decisions are very often ignorant of the details of a particular thing. Well, it's an easy solution there. We could train them better. They're very often prejudiced. They have their own ideas in advance, and they push their own ideas, often in the face of evidence to the contrary. They have a lack of judgment. A solution, we could increase the appropriate experience relevant to the particular project. The whole system of rewards and sanctions. Well, there are no rewards. There are no sanctions. So perhaps we need to introduce more performance management into our MPs. They're very often overconfident or certainly in a hurry. Perhaps we need to increase the self-awareness of our MPs. They can be careless. They can be stubborn. And there's a sort of a cultural gap. They're not really representative, or they're no longer representative, and they don't really understand the electorate. In all of this, sadly, the body which is supposed to act as a check on all this rash behaviour, Parliament, well, Parliament becomes a bit of an irrelevant spectator. Whips ensure that Parliament is not able to rein in this behaviour, Scrutiny committees are disempowered by party loyalties and by ministers either pressuring their fellow party members or simply bypassing the scrutiny process, and sometimes bypassing Parliament itself altogether. The Public Accounts Committee, actually one of the most useful bits of Westminster, well that only checks on activity after the fact. So where does all this leave us? We have a system which isn't very representative and a system to which politicians have to commit their entire professional lives in order to get to a position where they can really grab headlines. It's little wonder that, after all the grief they suffer at the hands of the media, and being aware how short their opportunity to make a difference might be, that they run around making a mark, a bit like a dog in a new garden, as a result of which we get some dreadful blunders, and that costs us both personally and nationally in terms of effectiveness and financial loss. Finally, we absolutely mustn't lose sight of the fact that, despite all this inadequately scrutinised activity from ministers, without adequate consultation and consensus building, the wicked issues are not being dealt with. They may not be cool or sexy issues to grapple with to get re-elected, but they don't go away by being ignored. And ignoring them just stores up worse problems for the future. All of that does not add up to a recipe for good government. We need to change things. Unless, of course, you have some different ideas. Some suggestions as to how things could be different. Perhaps about how we could use our systems differently, or about how we could tweak them so that they worked better, in all of our interests. If you have any ideas, we would love to hear from you. In Season 3 of Taking the Party Out of Politics, we will be exploring various ideas about how we could make things better. And we'd love to hear from you. Just email us with your ideas on info at talktogether.info. If your ideas are good, or if they help us to understand things more clearly, then we'll include them in Series 3. We might even contact you to interview you about your suggestions. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Next time, we're going to wrap up the current series with an overview of problems with the way Westminster and Whitehall is supposed to work, or rather, with the ways in which it isn't working. Next time, we'll have a second summary of Impossible Puzzles from how hard it is to get elected and started at Westminster once you are elected, through to all the different pressures on you as an MP, and all the structural issues which either bypass you completely, or which push you into a corner, or which drag you in different directions. Well, we already know from Series 1 that the system of selecting a good representative is pretty much impossible. And now we can see that all these impossible puzzles mean that it's also pretty much impossible for a good representative to do a good job, even if they are successful, at getting selected and elected. So next time we're going to have a look at all of that. For now, thank you for listening. If you'd like to have a look at the transcripts of the podcast, including links to all of our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, if you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we could make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work, but why it isn't working, then please email us anytime on info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends, and perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just also really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.